This week's episode of Pro Se is brought to you by Casefleet. What's more important than knowing the facts of your case inside and out? That's where Casefleet comes in. Casefleet's revolutionary and easy-to-use software makes it easy to create a chronology of each case and track the evidence for each fact. With an intuitive interface, full-text search, and built-in document review, Casefleet makes fact management easy. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Uh, says here in the script doc that it's episode 200. Can nah. that possibly can can that possibly be right, Amber? Uh, hard to believe, right? <laughs> I yes. choose I choose to not believe that. Yeah. Do you know how much of our lives we've devoted to this show to have made it to 200 episodes? So I would many like man to s- hours. I would like to see some stats, like how often we've talked about certain things, how, just the the, the, the sure. hours we've put in. Um, I'd like to maybe, maybe producer Steve can get on that. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. Let's 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 put a let's put a ticket into the analytics department on that one. Um, Real classic pro se move for us diva hosts to be like, hey, producer Steve, could you just come on? Like, hey, get it together. Yeah, man. get on that. Would you? I yeah, am so. often described in. <laughs> the workplace as a diva so it's true um, sure sure yeah uh <laughs> we got a good show though for 200 i think yeah yeah we're gonna talk to our senior security reporter dean seal he's coming on the show to talk about a uh, pretty high level enforcement position in the sec that was filled and then one week later was vacant again so we're gonna talk about how that happened uh what went into the abrupt end to uh the tenure there in just a week yeah, there's some good uh, big law goss that gets tangled up in that story, too. Yeah, because so that's the key, that, that it was a big law attorney and it's just the whole thing. It's just all over the place. Yes. Um, very interesting story. We have some news to get to before we talk about that, though. And uh, for this first story that I'll talk about, um, something of an existential question. What if you, uh, you know, declared a bankruptcy that uh, wasn't? actually a bankruptcy what if that happened now are you saying that when i yell that i declare (laughs) bankruptcy that that is not a valid form of bankruptcy you know it's so funny like that was the first thing that popped into my mind we all of course remember when michael scott verbally declared bankruptcy in the office and this story is kind of like if someone did that and then a federal judge intervened to say actually no uh and this is essentially what played out (laughs) Uh, this week uh, with the National Rifle Association. The NRA um, filed for bankruptcy earlier this year, um, and this week a federal bankruptcy court uh, basically said, um, you're not actually bankrupt, and you can't use the bankruptcy laws to shield yourself uh, from a very high-profile New York State uh, corruption investigation. So an interesting sort of overlapping uh, of sort of bankruptcy law and state oversight. uh, Fascinating case. Yeah, this one's pretty juicy. I mean, high-profile players and uh, judge pretty much slapping them down for this tactic. So let's get into it. Like, what's actually going on here? Yeah, I I feel like... I mean, I could probably count on one hand the number of times we've ever talked about bankruptcy on the show, and that's because it can be a little, 
a little dry, uh, even for our audience, um, and, 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 and a little bit weedy. But this is interesting because this, at, at its core, is a story about exactly what the bankruptcy laws are intended for in this country. And I think uh, an informative place to start here with this NRA case is that last year, um, it was in August of last year, New York Attorney General Letitia James um, sued the NRA for fraud, um, which basically accused the leaders of the gun lobby, which is supposed to operate as a nonprofit organization, an advocacy group, of basically funneling donor money into their own pockets for these extravagant expenses. It's essentially a, it's a, it's essentially a corruption case uh, involving a nonprofit. Now, soon after uh, the AG's office filed that case, the NRA, which is headquartered in New York, filed for bankruptcy, and it looked to reincorporate itself in Texas, where obviously it's, it, 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 it perceived a much more friendly regulatory environment um, for, a, for a guns rights group. Um, this drew a new lawsuit from Letitia James's office, basically claiming that the organization was using bankruptcy as a shield to avoid oversight from her office, and that sort of brings us to the live legal dispute that we're talking about now. I think the reason this story has resonated with a lot of people is because, you know, bankruptcy, as you alluded to at the beginning of this segment, is something that a lot of people don't really understand, and yeah. it can feel like this sort of panacea for companies to get out of all sorts of situations. Yes. So it's very interesting to, this is sort of that, but on steroids, that the idea of can you use it to not only break leases and, you know, screw over your shareholders, but can you use it to avoid an actual fraud investigation? Yeah. Um, a novel question uh, uh, presented to the court, and the the answer there uh, from this Texas bankruptcy judge this week is a resounding no. Um, the suit from James's office uh, prompted some pretty... Uh, some pretty fascinating testimony from NRA officials, and most notably its president is a man named Wayne LaPierre, who, if you've followed the NRA at all, I mean, he's been sort of the vanguard of the gun lobby for several decades now. Um, LaPierre's testimony basically indicated that the NRA is not actually experiencing any financial hardships. It has um, sufficient cash on hand to pay its creditors. Which is, without getting too deep into bankruptcy, that's sort of a threshold test for whether or not you are actually bankrupt sure. if you can pay your creditors. <laughs> yes. Um, that I do he, understand. Yeah, yeah. That that I think we can all understand <laughs> at a conceptual level. Um, and in his testimony, LaPierre effectively concedes the opposing side's point. He, he all but said um, that the bankruptcy was made specifically to escape scrutiny from this New York AG lawsuit and the bankruptcy judge who was hearing the case uh made very clear that that is not what the law as intend is intended for here was sort of the uh the, the main quote from the opinion this week the nra is using this bankruptcy case to address a regulatory enforcement problem not a financial one the nra is a solvent and growing organization using this bankruptcy as a tool to win its disillusion lawsuit and that is not an appropriate use of bankruptcy so fairly open and shut there um just sort of this is not really um, the facts of the case. We're not really in dispute. This is more of a legal uh, sort of debate over how you can use these laws. Um, more so, uh, more to the point, the uh, the trial lasted about twelve days, and it revealed um, a fairly a fairly chaotic response behind the scenes uh, at the NRA. Uh, a, a a response to James's lawsuit. Uh, LaPierre uh, basically said he filed for bankruptcy without informing the NRA's board of directors or its in-house counsel. 
again, I mean, if you're going to file for bankruptcy, you might want to tell your lawyer. He did not do that in this case, uh, which the judge said was, quote, nothing less than shocking uh, to not tell your lawyer you're filing for bankruptcy. So the cards were all uh, pretty well laid on the table here at trial. Yeah, it's so interesting that it took a bankruptcy case like this to sort of air out some of the inner workings of this organization. I think a lot of people are really interested in in how they proceed with stuff. So mm-hmm. that's been fascinating. But um, is this the end of it, at least in the bankruptcy side? Is the NRA just going to pack it in and be done here after this after this order? I guess when you take a long view of what's going on with the with the AG's um, prosecution of uh, of the NRA, this when we look back on it, this whole bankruptcy thing will kind of maybe be like a little bit of a detour. It seems to just sort of maybe been a stalling tactic or something else. Um, and obviously, there are political overtones when the when a, when the state goes after um, a guns rights group. Um, but we'll see how it plays out. Um, the NRA conceivably could appeal this bankruptcy finding. However, the judge was so skeptical of the claim. I mean, as has been as we've discussed here, they said if the organization, if the NRA tries to keep this bank, like tries to keep crying poor here, the court is basically going to appoint a trustee to oversee the organization and its finances, which effectively wrestles control away from the NRA leadership. And it's kind of up to them if they actually want to do that. Uh, We'll see how that goes. Most people seem to agree that that's um, probably not going to happen. So don't anticipate an appeal here, but we will see. Um, what the ruling does do is allow both James, uh, uh, Letitia James's initial lawsuit against them to go forward uh, and also other litigation. They are currently locked in a pretty nasty defamation uh, dispute with the ad agency Ackerman McQueen. Over Very strange case. Run. Yeah, that's a really strange case. Well, I'm, I'm if if. If that comes uh, uh, to anything of substance, I'm sure we'll talk about it in future shows. But that can now go forward. As, as you said, Bill, the bankruptcy kind of serves as a pause for a lot of litigation. All this stuff can now go forward. Um, but uh, in all, this was um, uh, something of a crash course in the uh, the reach and the limits of uh, federal bankruptcy laws, um, which uh, the NRA uh, took a hard lesson in. For our second story, we're going to pivot from federal bankruptcy law to... State attorney advertising laws, specifically New Jersey's state <laughs> attorney advertising laws. You I like that? It. That's a that's a pro segue right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it, so it seems if you you know are involved in the legal industry the way that we are, it seems like every attorney in America is is a quote super lawyer or a you know AV rated lawyer or uh, some other accolade. Um, But after a bunch of complaints, the New Jersey State Supreme Court uh, came out with new rules this week about when attorneys can boast about those kind of accolades, when they can include them in advertisements. Um, So it's an interesting look at sort of the way that, uh, you know, states try to rein in the way that attorneys talk about themselves. A huge blow to the billboard market. Uh, which everybody, of course, takes advantage of. Uh, Like you say, I mean, there's a race to sort of declare yourself to be accredited in certain ways or or having uh, certain accolades bestowed upon you. But uh, what are we talking about here? Like you say, there's some attempt to maybe put some Put some put some guideposts around this. What are we talking about here exactly? Yeah, on Monday, the uh, the the New Jersey Supreme Court's Committee on Attorney Advertising issued pretty strict new guidelines for when attorneys can display that they have been awarded uh, a super lawyer title or other similar honors. The the other examples listed by the court were 
AV preeminent, BV distinguished, best <laughs> lawyers, top lawyer, top law firm, superior attorney, leading lawyer, rising stars, and top-rated counsel. Um, <laughs> clearly, that's not an exhaustive list, but that, those no, are no. sort of the examples they gave. Um, yeah, right. Apparently, the court had received numerous grievances regarding how lawyers use these kind of recognitions to promote themselves. And when they dug into the issue, they looked at it themselves, they pretty quickly found quite a few problems. The quote from the court, some of these awards are the result of a cursory survey of lawyers in the area with no subsequent independent vetting by the conferring organization. Several such awards are issued by regional magazines. Some are popularity contests. The lawyer wins, in scare quotes, the award when enough people email, telephone, or text their vote. Other awards are issued for a price or as a, quote, reward for joining an organization. Still others are generated based in large part on the participation of the lawyer with the conferring organization's website. The court also noted that um, any exchange of money or uh, that that any sort of membership agreement that you join our group, you get the thing. Those were also what the court called suspect. So just really looking at like the way that these awards are are granted and making sure that you're not just putting them out there if i mean you know you can follow the logic if you if you can just put whatever you want on there and there's no rules whatsoever you could just make stuff up yeah i mean this all seems very logical and straightforward but these things get a little squishy so what exactly are the new restrictions like can you say anything about an accolade are there some that are um considered still okay yeah they laid down some pretty clear standards for how to do this so the court said lawyers can only boast about these kind of awards if the group handing them out has done a quote adequate and individualized inquiry into the professional fitness of the lawyer end quote um the onus is on the attorney to make sure that the award meets those standards um but even if it does the court said a lawyer who wants to include that in their advertising um they need to include additional information about the award that they're talking about so they need Mm -hmm. to list clearly the awarding organization and that means the actual organization not just the award name uh they need to either list the methodology cleanly or provide a way like if it's a digital thing they can provide a hyperlink to easily find it and they specifically said it's almost as if they're writing for lawyers they specifically said yeah (laughs) this can't be in tiny print this can't be on some second page it can't be buried uh you need to have it in close proximity to the actual claim (laughs) two more interesting things they said um if you if you are awarded something like this where the uh, the name of the award is a superlative like super lawyers you can't simply use that to refer to yourself. Uh, that, I, I did that at the up at the the top of this segment, but yeah. they, what they said was, if you're included on, if you can say, I was included on a list called super lawyers, but you cannot simply refer to yourself as a super lawyer. I mean, one would hope out of simple class, <laughs> most people were not. What? Just simply, this takes the wind out of my sails entirely. This, <laughs> I mean, I live in New Jersey and I'm a lawyer. Can't do anything fun right. anymore. <laughs> they, I, once again, being Amber, is being, once Amber again. is being silenced for her views <laughs> by the New Jersey State Supreme Court. When yes, will yes. they stop? Yes. Uh, one last thing. They included a specific uh, thing about if this is in just, even if it's just a badge on your email or anytime you're really bragging about this stuff, you need to follow these rules. So um, it's interesting. Everyone has seen on TV the, the you know, ads that say these don't represent actual results. Everyone knows there's <laughs> rules on legal yeah. advertising, but it's interesting to see 
how the court approaches something like this uh, when, you know, it's it's it seems like you should be able to brag about these things. But but there's I think there's good reason that the court found for why sometimes these awards might be a little bit suspect. Again, this week's Pro Se is brought to you by Case Fleet. Experience a better way to build winning cases with Case Fleet's case management software. Case Fleet provides lawyers with tools for reviewing evidence, organizing facts, and identifying trends that would otherwise remain hidden. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at casefleet.com law360 and get 10% off your first subscription. Alex O, a big law partner who was selected to head up enforcement activities at the Securities and Exchange Commission, resigned only one week after being hired for the job. Her departure was followed by sanctions in a case against Exxon that she'd handled as a corporate defense attorney. Today, we have our senior securities reporter, Dean Seal, on the show to explain this messy case that got her sanctioned and how it led to her departure from a prestigious administrative post. Welcome to our show, Dean. Nice to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. I really want to get into all the nooks and crannies of this story. It's really fascinating. But for people who aren't as ensconced in the securities world as you are, I think we just start right at the beginning. Who's Alex O and and what was her pedigree um, to be selected to be uh, an enforcement head at the SEC? Sure. So Alex O is a name that I and actually I think a lot of people in the securities industry had not actually heard until uh, late April when she was appointed to be the new enforcement director of the SEC. Um, and I should point out just kind of off the top that um, being the enforcement director of the SEC is probably the most prestigious position that you can have um, apart from being actually on the commission or, or the chairman or something like that. Um, because you are heading up their 1,300 person division that's I think ever since Bernie Madoff and the financial crisis been considered kind of the the main job of the SEC is its enforcement policy. And you're the person um, that's charged with carrying that out. So it's a huge deal of a job. Um, and so when Alex O was picked in late April, um, I wouldn't say it necessarily came as a big surprise to anybody. I mean, she had been a corporate defender for about 20 years at Paul Weiss. Um, but as the SEC was um, big you know, on pointing out in its announcement, she had also been a assistant prosecutor in the Southern District of New York for about three and a half years. Um, and while she was there, she'd actually been on the Securities and Commodities uh, Task Force, um, which I think is a it's a task force that I think three of O's four predecessors had all been a part of as well. Um, so she did come in with sort of this prosecutorial pedigree. Um, but since about 2001, she had been at Paul Weiss, um, which is a highly esteemed law firm um, with big ties to the Democratic Party. If, and I think that sort of gives you kind of an understanding into how maybe she was under the eye of Gary Gensler, who himself is bringing back a Democratic administration at the SEC. Um, but while she was with Paul Weiss, she was primarily a corporate defender. Uh, I mean, some of her bigger clients included Pfizer and UBS and Merck, and now, I guess, most notably ExxonMobil. Um, and so that was kind of going in, that was definitely um, something that a lot of left sort of progressive groups and leftist groups um, that were in watchdog positions were looking out for was her track record as a corporate defender, um, mm-hmm. which is not unusual for people coming into the enforcement position to have that sort of background. Um, but having done it for 20 years, was certainly significant in the eyes of a lot of uh, watchdogs. Sure. 
The uh, I love this story because this is as close as Law 360 gets to like page six or uh, tabloid <laughs> type stuff. Um, so she takes this very prestigious post, like you're saying, it's a huge job to be, um, you know, heading up enforcement at the SEC. Um, but the reason we're having you on is because she was there for just a shade under a week. Uh, and when something like that happens, uh, there's obviously stories to be written and talked about. I know that um, her abrupt departure from this job was possibly to do with this very contentious case she was involved in as a private practitioner. Talk about the the circumstances of her of her of her quick uh, of her um, abrupt resignation from this prestigious post. Right. So uh, we found out, like you said, a week after um, she was announced as the new top enforcer that she would be leaving. And I think that the the line that was given by the SEC, which they were the first people to announce this, that was also something that was a, a bit of a shock, because I think a lot of times in these types of situations, it'll come from media reports or something sure. like that. Something will leak. Uh, instead, it was the SEC that had this out at 5 p.m., you know, a week after they had named her. And in it, they had said um, that they had cited personal reasons. Uh, but it became pretty clear um, within just a couple of hours as everybody started to kind of dig into this case that it was connected to a um, an order that had come down two days ahead of her departure. Um, and that was an order out of the D.C. federal, uh, from a D.C. federal judge who was essentially saying that she and other Paul Weiss attorneys who had been on the defense team for ExxonMobil in a very long-running case related to human rights abuses, um, that they needed to explain why they shouldn't be sanctioned for some actions that at the time were not made clear, but essentially it, it referenced some sort of dust-up at a deposition from February. Um, and so that was all the information given at the time. Uh, there was some other reporting out there that she had said in a resignation letter to Gary Gensler that her departure was related to a case that was going to present an unwelcome distraction from her new role. Um, and so ever since then, it's become clear that it's the Sexon case. Um, and we now have an unsealed order that kind of lays out a bit about this deposition from February and just what some of the trouble was. Um, yeah. Can you talk about that a little more? So like, we have, you know, this this purported uh, or it's, it's, it's documented in court documents, this, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, misconduct or malfeasance in this deposition. What exactly is she uh, accused of doing here? Sure. So a little bit about this deposition. Um, so effectively, they were bringing in a general counsel from Exxon's side to into this seven-hour deposition related to this human rights case. And in it, it apparently just got a bit contentious. I think the main source of tension between the two sides was this general counsel um, from Exxon was pretty obviously reading from a script uh, for all of the questions that were being lobbed from the plaintiff's side. Um, and the way that the that sort of his conduct has been characterized is that he's he was somewhat obstinate in actually answering or providing substantive uh, responses to any of the questions that were being posed to him. And this continued for the entirety of the seven hour deposition. And it sounds like when the plaintiff side counsel, primarily headed up by Cohen Milstein attorneys, tried to press in on some of this, that's when some of these tensions flared up. There was accusations uh, from both sides about maybe the deposition either being taken in bad faith or the responses that were being posed back, again, being in bad faith because they were from this um, the script that had clearly been coordinated with mm -hmm. the defense counsel. Um, and so when those tensions flared up, uh, I don't think there was necessarily name calling or anything like that, but just accusations flying from both sides um, of some form of impropriety. I mean, Dean, so far, not to be 
too naive here, but this kind of just sounds like heated discovery. I mean, it doesn't seem that unusual to me what you're describing up to this point that it just seems like, okay, there was a really long and contentious deposition. Uh, everyone was mad. Uh, it doesn't seem out of bounds. It doesn't seem like what would lead to someone to have to resign a very prominent position in the, you know, in the executive branch. So how did we, how did this turn? What exactly did Alex O do that led her to think, okay, this is a big enough deal that it's going to impact my future job? Right. So a lot of attorneys I've talked to have similarly said that, you know, big contentious depositions are just par for the course when it comes to corporate defense. Uh, In fact, anyone who might read back through that deposition from a corporate defense kind of perspective might actually think that's what you want. I mean, you want corporate defenders who are going to be attack dogs, who are going to um, you know, push at every limit that they can. And if it creates some tension, then that's totally okay because you want, you know, you want a, a sometimes vicious advocate on your side. What actually became problematic here was that um, some of those tensions turned into threats of sanctions from both sides of counsel. Okay. And ultimately, those turned into, those actualized themselves. It started with plaintiff's counsel seeking sanctions against um, Exxon in this case because they thought that the, um, the, attorney who was being deposed wasn't being responsive, that the defendant's conduct, that the defendant's counsel's conduct was kind of backing that up and that they weren't really pursuing a honest uh, deposition. And when that motion was filed, then uh, Paul Weiss and Alex O, they filed a cross motion for sanctions as well, essentially saying that the deposition was in bad faith, but most crucially in that cross motion for sanctions, uh, Alex O and the other defense attorneys were characterizing plaintiff's counsel as having been agitated and unhinged. And they're primarily talking about one attorney in particular, the one who's trying to take the deposition and were trying to characterize them as essentially kind of flying off the handle when they weren't getting the responses that they, that, um, were, that they were seeking initially. And that is actually where the main source of sort of legal issues have, have arisen because um, when you file a cross motion for sanctions like that, you are essentially telling the court, this is the truth, mm-hmm. or at least this is, you know, this was more than just our perception of what happened. This is conduct that needs to be addressed by the court. And so when the judge in the case did go back and review the seven-hour deposition, as well as the transcript from the, uh, from, um, the testimony, he saw that the accusations being leveled by Paul Weiss's attorneys and by Alex O were not necessarily true, or at least there was no evidence on the record to back them up. There was no uh, evidence of plaintiff's counsel becoming agitated, not really raising his voice more than just, I think uh, the judge pointed out three times in which he raised his voice, and it was just to try to pull attention back to him as he was asking a question. And so I think that was really the crux of where this turned from just a fiery deposition into into sanctionable conduct is when the judge realized that... um, the defense attorneys in the case simply weren't telling the court the truth, at least in his eyes, or at least based on what was on the record. It's pretty amazing to me how much this devolves from just like um, almost. I mean, I don't mean to. The, the underlying case is obviously hugely important. It's a human rights case, but like this conflict among the attorneys is some like petty sort of accusations about like you're like yelling at me too much and actually uh, I wasn't yelling at you at all um, and now this it, it but the way you're describing it it kind of just ballooned to such a degree 
that it costs that 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 this that Alex O felt the need to step away from her job. Talk about the fallout a little bit. So the Paul Weiss team and O were sanctioned, right? And now there's been some there have been like sort of there have been apologies made and then like accusations of bad faith apologies. Like what's 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 been the fallout from the incident? So since this uh, broke in, I guess, yeah, the very last week of April, uh, everybody's eyes have been kind of glued back onto this Exxon case uh, because each of the council teams have responded to this judge right. you know, a- asking for further explanation about what's gone on here and whether further sanctions have to be applied. I mean, in that original order, the judge did actually sanction Exxon, at, at least to the degree that he, he ordered for that deposition to be taken again. And for the uh, witness to be actually responsive and providing so, at least adequate responses to um, mm-hmm. to some of plaintiff's questions, um, so the next question sort of became: Do you do we actually sanction the attorneys individually um, yeah. rather than just Exxon as a defendant? Um, and that's where we've seen more of this back and forth between Cohen Milstein and Paul Weiss and Alex O as an individual, since she's no longer part of that team. Um, it started out with Alex O and Paul Weiss filing uh, responses to the judge's questions last Friday. They did notably file those responses on the same day that the order um, was unsealed, detailing how the deposition actually went down. Yeah, um, a lot of people believe that that was somewhat strategic because it was their ability to kind of get ahead and um, give their response to uh, to the dust up, to the drama before the drama was actually fully revealed yeah. to the, uh, publicly. Um, and in it, uh, Alex O called the whole situation a breakdown of civility. Um, I think Paul Weiss sort of mimics a lot of that language and said that this was, you know, just a fiery deposition. But they actually, they did stand by a lot of their characterizations of uh, Cohen Milstein's conduct which then drew a response from Cohen Milstein on Monday in which they kind of ripped into both of those responses from the defense counsel saying that these were half apologies and that clearly they were disregarding the fact that the judge had found no evidence on the record of their characterizations and yet they were still trying to stand behind them to a degree. So it just kind of turned into, again, just you know, one attorney calling out yeah. another um, and that so culminated. Yes, clearly learned their lessons. Then they, <laughs> yeah. all of this dust up. Really, they took a lot of things away from this. Well, that's inter- that is interesting because that is what Alex O said in her declaration on okay. Friday. She yeah, said that. Uh, that I. She said I have. You know, she really regrets the breakdown of civility, but that she's really come to understand the consequences of those actions, which. Uh, you know, I think if Paul Weiss attorneys were to say that, you know, that's debatable and it's a nice thing to say to court. But in Alex O's case, it it feels pretty legitimate in the sense that she thought that this drama was indeed too distracting for her to take over one of the biggest jobs in securities regulation. Um, yeah. And so now that we've reached that that sort of apex point where there's been sanctions, there's been sort of we now know exactly what happened and she had to step away from that post. Um what is the big takeaway here? I mean, I know we're butting up a little bit between how zealous an advocate you can be yeah. before tipping over that line. So if uh, any attorneys, uh, even prominent ones, are listening, what should they take from this unusual case of Alex O? Well, if uh, you were to go by the judge's order from yesterday in which he, he did actually formally sanction uh, Alex O and the Paul Weiss attorneys um, individually, um, he sanctioned them a form of just giving an admonishment. There's no yeah. um, sort of larger punishment that they might be facing. Um, but I guess if you were to look to that order and look for a takeaway, it's primarily just that you have to 
as a as an attorney, no matter what, you have to really be careful about what sort of representations you make to the court beyond just kind of standard operating procedures of you know of discovery, um, and that's you know no matter how fire these things can get you. You still can't, at least in the, in the judge's words, you can't impugn uh, your opposing counsel uh, without some sort of, sort of evidence. And so it's, I mean, it's almost as true as anything else in law. You have to find evidence to make the, to support your claims or else you can face some serious sanctions. Really clear cut cautionary tale there, Dean. Thank you for coming on the show and, and telling us all the details. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. like to end our show with something offbeat. I'm not even going to give any intro to this. This one's wild. Yeah, it's, um, <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Uh, it's, we've gone 200 shows, mostly doing offbeat segments. And really all of them were a build up to this moment. We were, <laughs> we were waiting for this, right. the, the archetypal offbeat segment. The apogee of the form. Yes. Yes. So uh, Judge Jeffrey Middleton was hearing a, uh, uh, a drug case in um, doing it over Zoom. And, uh, you know, everyone was was joining joining the call. And, uh, well, let's just let's just play the tape. Good morning, sir. What's your name? Me? Yeah, you. Yes. Nathaniel Saxon, sir. Your name's not Buttfucker3000, you yo-ho. Logging into my court with that as your screen name. Why would that in a little bit? Uh, what kind of idiot logs into court like that? What's your name again? Nathaniel Saxton, sir, but I don't believe that I typed anything like that in. Well, that's what it says. Yeah, you should. I'll put you in the waiting room. You can sit in limbo for a while and think about what you call yourself online. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I I would describe my entire life as sitting in limbo, thinking about what I call myself online. Yeah, well, certainly. (laughs) I think we could um, all do with a little bit of reflection in that regard. Uh, think about what we call ourselves online. This is amazing. Um, I versions of this have happened to me. Nothing so vulgar as this, but like I've definitely probably even on this podcast, like I've jokingly changed my. What happened here is that the guy had a his on his Zoom name, like changed it to you know this vulgar thing. Clearly, he's probably on a group chat with his bros or some other sure. people, and they were joking around, and then he forgot to change it back when he had to do uh, conduct business. Um, it's, it's 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 pretty easy to see this happening. Uh, yeah, you know. like, definitely. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, uh, an interesting dynamic playing out. Uh, judge wasn't too pleased with it, um, but uh, yeah. I don't, well, uh, so do he we, apparently do he we... apparently came back in later and said okay. uh, that it was, quote, an inside joke. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. I'm sure. I'm embarrassed. 
and I'm <laughs> and yep. I'm sorry. And then the judge said, "Well, you should be." <laughs> Although, oh. I, I, I I mean, I I sort of feel sorry for him. I mean, I I know this is it's terrible, and he should have <laughs> checked all this before he joined a, a court hearing. Um, but in the age we're all in right now, where we're doing everything on our laptops. It's just so easy to make mistakes. Amber, I completely agree. That's where that, that was the take I was about to to offer that like, you know, this this guy was in on a on a a drug paraphernalia charge like he I, I don't know if he was represented by counsel. I hope he was, but like <laughs> I I felt bad after like the you know, the judge is up there just like just belittling the guy on on a live stream like, you know, it's it's just it, I think the judge the judge is kind of the uh, the heel in this video. Ultimately. Yeah, well, it's also premeditated. You hear him saying, and he's like, "Let me, let me, let me take this." I'm paraphrasing, but he says something to the effect of, "Let's see what this guy's got to say for himself," because he like <laughs> clearly knew and he let him in anyway. Right. You could just say, "Maybe change your name." Yeah. You clearly, hey, well, have right. used the wrong well, the name. Guy, well, and the guy had no idea. Like he, you can hear him say in the clip, like. He thought yeah, he was confused. talking about something in the chat box. He was like, "Oh, I didn't, I didn't write anything, Judge." Uh, uh, pretty unfortunate for our man, you know, uh, Nathaniel Saxton. I kind, of, I kind of wonder too if this is um, one of those things. Like maybe the judge was harder on this because we're all pretty fatigued with all this Zoom stuff. Like yeah. I think maybe like who knows what he's seen come through. Remember all those stories we've done about like judges being like, "Hey, attorneys." Could you not be in your bed and could you put on a shirt? Put a shirt like, on with it's buttons been crazy and crazy stuff. On it. Yeah, but yeah. at least that's attorneys. Like the, the you know, they have a higher sure. standard than a, a random guy. But I just wonder if judges like uh patience is wearing really thin a year plus into all this. Sure. I I I mean, I know from now on I will check my Zoom to make yeah. sure that anytime <laughs> I'm going on, it's not gonna be Oh, I've been told I can't actually say it, so uh, it, it <laughs> yeah, won't be that. <laughs> yeah, let's not do that either. It's a teachable That's moment. Great. But yes. I'm I'm glad we all can, yeah, learn the lesson here from someone else and make sure we got our houses in order. Correct. With that, I think we should just end this show before anybody accidentally changes their screen name. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for being with me today, Bill. See you again next week, guys. And Alex. Thanks. We'd also like to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guests this week, Dean Seal, and our contributing reporters, Vince Sullivan, Al Barbarino, and Bill Weikert. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. And if you like Pro Se, leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That's how other people find our show. If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, go on over to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.